You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. This is the word of the Lord. I suspect every profession has jokes made about it. It's more fun to tell jokes about someone else's profession than to hear a joke about your own. We all know lots of lawyer jokes. We all know lots of doctor jokes. We all know lots of used car salesman jokes. But sometimes I hear preacher jokes I don't particularly care for. Years ago, when I was still a student, I was really working hard five days a week to be a full-time student, driving 175 miles late Friday afternoon, pastoring two little churches on the weekend, driving 175 miles back to Dallas before Interstate 20, uh, I went to get a haircut one afternoon. And a fellow in the next chair said to his barber, boy, times are really getting hard. Times get any harder. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the barber said, well, I have preached and I'm not too good to do it again. I didn't think that was funny. They thought it was awfully funny. I have preached and I'm not too good to do it again. Teachers have a lot of jokes about them. One of the ones we've all heard for years is those who can do and those who can't teach. Last August, I was working hard on titles for the sermons I would be writing this year, beginning with the Advent, when I drove one Monday morning early down to Muskogee to speak to all of their teachers and administrators on their first day back. Hopefully, I was to inspire them, encourage them, help challenge them to the great job they had before them. I got there a little bit early. I'd been told where the high school was, but I wasn't quite sure, and so I left a little earlier, got there a little bit earlier. So I was standing just outside the auditorium door watching all these people coming in. Most of them didn't know who I was, and I was just standing there watching. And suddenly I saw one of these teachers with a a button this big pinned to her blouse, and it said, Those who can, do. Those who believe others can, teach. I like that word. I like that very much. Your teacher believed you can. So he taught you. He taught me. And we're looking diligently at what he had to say to us. First thing today. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not. I have come to fulfill them. Now, Jesus, of course, is speaking about the scriptures of his day. They consisted of 39 scrolls. Though many rabbis have written commentary on those scriptures, there are still only 39 scrolls in the Hebrew scriptures. It's unfortunate that Matthew here calls them law, the first portion of them, because 
that's a Greek word, nomos, law. That's not a word Jesus would have used. Jesus spoke Aramaic, uh, derivative and related to Hebrew. And the word would have been Torah. And Torah doesn't mean law at all. It means the instructions, the teachings. Jesus called to himself disciples. The word means learners. He called to himself learners. And when they came, he sat down and taught them. And he immediately begins by saying, what I'm going to teach you does not negate what has already been taught to you. I tell you, no, I have not come to abolish any of that, but to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. On another occasion, he was asked, well, of all these writings, what is the most important commandment? He said, right from the Torah, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And what that would have said to them was, The Eye Asher Eye, the I am who I am, your Elohim, is the only one. You must have no other El but Him. You must love this El with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second one is sort of like the first, and he takes it right from the Torah. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And here he's saying, none of that's been negated. None of that's been abolished. Both of those are still true. There is only one God. You're to love this God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you're supposed to be willing to put yourself out for the well-being of another. Neighbor doesn't mean those you like. It means the one nearest you. Just start with the one nearest you. That'll work fine. So when we delve into all of Christ's teachings, but specifically right now the Sermon on the Mount, we need to keep reminding ourselves we are tied forever to the community that produced Jesus, to the Hebrew community, the, Jew, the Jewish community, the Israelite community. We are tied forever with them, and their holy writ is our holy writ as well. Dr. Robert Gorell is the new pastor of Church of the Servant, United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. Recently, he wrote to his congregation a story that he had read. A writer was telling a story about a young woman born into a very poor Christian family in Southeast Asia. Most of that community were not Christian. There were Hindus, there were Buddhists, there were Muslims, only a few Christians. But her family was one of those Christian families, and she was given a Christian name, Elizabeth, the name given to the mother of John the Baptizer. Elizabeth, she loved her name. At 16 years of age, when she had been told that there were better, more wonderful ways of living one's life in other parts of the world, a relative of the family said that he traveled fairly frequently into the next country and that he had connections there. He could help Elizabeth make it all the way to a great university and a brighter future. And her parents, who had never ventured beyond their village, entrusted her with this relative's care. He took her across the border into the next country and sold her into prostitution slavery. She was there seven months. Sixteen years old, one tiny little room, one 
filthy man after another sent into her room. Finally, after seven months, she was rescued by an international organization that seeks out just such tragic happenings and sets these young women free. When they got into Elizabeth's room, they found that between these horrible people who were using and misusing her, she had written scriptures just above her bed. On the wall, she had no other writing material, she had written on the wall things she remembered from her upbringing. But they said one in particular, she seemed to have copied again and again, written it over and over and over and over, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And Jesus said, I've come to teach you more about that Lord. Okay? Number two, Jesus says to all who would follow him, you are salt. He didn't say try harder to be salt. He said you are salt. It's a passive verb in both Matthew and Luke that if salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be made salt again? Implying that we were made salt. We know how important salt is if we've ever been placed on a salt-free diet. We know how much salt adds to the flavor of our food. There are actually scriptures in the Hebrew, our Old Testament, where a word for eating with someone came from a root meaning to share salt. They shared salt, it says in Ezra. They shared salt, it says in Numbers. I remember when I was a child, those special occasions when we would make homemade ice cream. There weren't a lot of ice cream parlors in my hometown. There certainly were none where they had big marble slabs and they mixed ice cream and all the fancy flavors. Most people had to make their own. And on those special occasions when we had homemade ice cream, I remember as a child watching my mother put all those ingredients together. Milk, cream, eggs, vanilla flavoring, sugar. And she always put just the pinch of salt in the ice cream. When I was in Boy Scouts, I remember one of the merit badges. I was supposed to learn some things about cooking. And one of the things I learned to make was chocolate fudge. My grandmother Biggs had a lot of pecan trees at her house, and we always had pecans and chocolate fudge with pecans in it. But the recipe said you put just a pinch of salt, even in chocolate fudge. I learned how to make chocolate chip cookies, and here with all the butter and the flour and so on, just a pinch of salt, just a pinch. One of my grandmothers, when she had a really ripe peach, loved to sprinkle just a little salt on the peach. She thought it brought out even more the sweetness. Jesus said, you are salt. Commentaries I read this week said, you know, salt never really loses its saltiness. Chemically, it doesn't. What happens to it is that it can become so adulterated that it's worthless. You can mix so much other stuff with it that it becomes adulterated. And then, as people did in biblical times, just throw the garbage out in the street. Just throw it out in the street if it's become so mixed with impurities that one ought not eat it. You just 
throw it out in the street. But you have been made salt. I was reading recently a review of a new book in the Wall Street Journal. This is a business book. And it's called The Carrot Principle. And when I saw the title, I knew what image that brought to my mind. Long ago, when people still plowed with horses, more likely for most farmers, mules or donkeys, burros, there was an image that you could get this animal to move by hitting it on the back end with a stick or holding out in front of it a carrot. The carrot or the stick? The carrot or the stick? Two fellows named... Elton and Gostick have written a new book called The Carrot Principle. And in their book they say that in the last five years they have interviewed and sent questionnaires to several million people who've changed jobs and that 79% said they changed jobs because they didn't feel appreciated. Sometimes that was reflected in their not being paid as much as they thought they should have been or not given as much time off or as much vacation time or whatever, but it traced back to not feeling appreciated. And these two fellows have written in their book, you see, everybody wants to believe that she or he matters. Well, here it is. Our teacher says, you are Salt. Number three. He then says in this passage, you are light. You're not only a salt, you are light. And no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. No one a lampstand so that it gives light to all that are in the house. When you read lamp here, don't think kerosene with a big glass globe on top of it. Think one little clay piece with a little bit of olive oil and a tiny wick. Uh, you can see these in lots of gift shops in Israel, even today. Think tiny, tiny little clay piece, a little bit of olive oil, a little tiny wick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. It means it was a really little house, one room. Think the kind of houses our youth just built in Rio Bravo, Mexico. But those little one room, concrete, cinder block houses, far better than sleeping in a cardboard box. So the houses were little and the people were poor who were hearing Jesus, and he said, you are the light. Again, one of the commentaries this week, Dr. F.W. Baer says, you know, light is not light in order for people to look at it. Light is to illuminate something else. We don't flip the switch, he said, so we, we sit there in our favorite chair and stare at the light. We turn on the light so we can read a book or we can see the faces of people with whom we're talking or whatever. It's not to look at the light. The light is to make possible looking at a lot of other things. In this case, Jesus said, your light shining so that others may see your good works and glorify that means shine light on your Father who is in heaven. One of the serious dramas on Broadway this year is a restaging of Brian Friel's uh, play called Translations. Uh, this play first was shaped on Broadway back in 1980, so it's about 27 years old now. 
But it's really not a play about 1980, and it's not a play about 2007. It's a play about 1833. Brian Friel is an Irishman, came from an Irish family, and this is a story about the year before the potato crops began to fail. Do you remember how devastating the potato famine was in Ireland? In the next few years, one million Irish starved to death. A million people in a small country starved to death. A million more fled the country trying to go anywhere there was something to eat, most of them, to the United States of America. In a relatively small country, two million people gone in just a few years. The play is about that. Translations. It's about intergenerational conversations. The old who think it's too late for them to go anywhere, yet there's no food. The young who want to go anywhere else, anywhere else, except staying here where people are dying, uh, where there's not enough food and there's not adequate number of ways to make a living and so on. It's about that. Particularly about two young men. Uh, one of whom sees the good in the people who are there and another who just wants to run away. Right near the end of the play, an old man says to his son, who's about to run, to remember everything is a form of madness. That's probably the play's best known line. To remember everything is a form of madness. What is he trying to say to his son? There are some images here, some experiences here that you ought to leave here if you're going to face that rising sun. If you're going to move into that new bright beginning, you need to know what to leave behind and what to take with you. Remembering everything is a form of madness. Remembering the right things makes all the difference in the world, remembering the right things. Once you're aware of hurt and pain, how then do you move away from that rather than dwelling on it the rest of your life? How do you move from the hurt and the pain, the disappointment, death, illness, whatever it may be that's hurt you, and move on? Jesus said, you are right. How do you remember and focus upon that which is light? This one of whom John would write, the true light was coming into the world and darkness has never been able to put it out. Number four, Jesus said, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You are a city built on a hill. You know what that image is? A city on a hill? didn't really begin with Jesus. certainly didn't begin with Ronald Reagan. It was a lot longer ago than that. In the Hebrew Scriptures, they talked about a city on a hill, Jerusalem, a temple at the top of that hill where the Torah and the prophets were taught every day. And that one day would come when all the world would be drawn to that city on that hill where God's Torah and prophets were taught. Jesus said, 
you are the city set on a hill. The temple had been gone for 600 years. 600 years ago, had been rebuilt 50 years later, had never been as beautiful as it was in Solomon's time. But Herod the Great, strangely enough, had enhanced its beauty. The Romans would destroy it again, completely in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt in the last more than 1900 years. That city, that temple, are not the focal point. But you, who are going into all the world, salt of the earth, light of the world, city set on a hill, a lamp not put under a bushel, but on a lampstand. You are to be that presence in the world. You are. He's made you salt. He's made you light. Go to the world and be. Matthew uses the word for world nine times in his gospel. And he doesn't use it the way Paul does. Usually when Paul speaks of this world, this is woe and doom and gloom and dark, and no, you be focused on, on, on the world which is to come. Matthew uses the word world in a very positive sense. This is the creation of God. This is the place. The kingdom has come near to this world, this marvelous creation of God. And you are salt in this world. You are light in this world. You are light on a hill. You are light on a lampstand. You're giving life to all. God has made you to be that. So be that in the world. Last Sunday was a long day after a very long Saturday for me. When the Vesper service was over after 7, right at 7, by the time Gail and I got home and I was calling those who had visited our church for the first time earlier that day, I turned on television. The Hallmark Hall of Fame was on. I know that most of the productions of the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which I've watched most of my adult life, are usually really feel-good stories, and I thought, that's what I need, a feel-good story, and so I watched. And it was called The Valley of Light. You see it? The title was The Valley of Light. 1946, they began a young soldier finally discharged after the end of World War II. He has been notified in writing that his mother and father have died while he's been gone. That his younger brother has gotten into some severe trouble. He's lost the farm and ended up in prison. And so this young man named Noah goes back home and gets off a bus and walks to the farm where he grew up. But somebody else owns it now. Somebody else is farming it now. There's no place for him. And so he walks on. He feeds himself by fishing. He's a very good fisherman. There's a little mysticism in the thing. Every time he's about to fish, he spreads his fingers on his right hand and he sticks his hand down just barely into the water. And he's doing whatever he's doing. Then he starts fishing and he always catches fish. He sticks his hand just under the surface of the water and waits for a few moments and then he begins to fish. And he fishes very well. Well, one day he's fishing, and an older gentleman is fishing alongside him and talks to him a little bit. And finally says, if you really want a new beginning, you need to climb over that hill and into the valley just beyond. It's a wonderful place, a really wonderful little town. And they have a river there that has the biggest bass in it you've ever seen in your life. I almost caught him one time. And Noah decides maybe that's where he needs to walk next. And so he goes over the hill and down into that valley. And he comes to know a lot of really wonderful people in that little town. One is a young woman named Eleanor. She's a widow, a young widow. 
She's looking after a very elderly mom who's sometimes fairly present and sometimes not so present and having great difficulty getting around. So Eleanor's pretty much locked in, a young widow with a big responsibility. He meets a couple that have a little grandson living with them. His name is Matthew. His mother has died. His father couldn't face that disappointment of losing his wife. He's moved several hundred miles away. And this little grandson's living with his grandparents who love him. Nonetheless, he lives in the hurt and pain of losing father and mother. And he just doesn't talk to anybody. Matthew doesn't talk. In time, Noah, the young soldier, teaches little Matthew how to fish. Things between Noah and Eleanor are moving along really well. And then one day, Matthew is not to be found. And when they all frantically look for him, it's Noah who finds him floating in the lake. He went to fish the way Noah had taught him. And he slipped in the water and drowned. And it shatters the little village. They gather, they sing the right hymns, they say the right prayers. But Noah's had enough of this. He gathers his few belongings and he starts out of town when Eleanor says to him, Just keep on walking. Just keep on walking. Maybe one day you will find a valley where there are people who've never lived with broken hearts. But if you do, you will find you are a 